once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Perimeter Church. Uh, If you've been with us these past few weeks, we're in the middle of a series called Church Matters. Uh, And this is a series that we are going through, we are looking at Christ's body, the church, as the Apostle Paul lays it out in the book of Ephesians. We've looked at the foundation of the church, we've looked at the mission of the church, last week we looked at the empowerment of the church, and this week we're back to a theme that is always seems to be simmering just below the surface in the letter of Ephesians. This issue of unity in the church. And you know, you and I, we, we look at that and think, why would this thing keep coming back? You know, enough already. We, we get it, Paul. We're supposed to be united. Jesus has taken those who are far apart and he's made them one. We understand. But Paul, like a dog that has found a really tasty bone, he just keeps coming back. And it's because he looks at this issue, and he doesn't see a peripheral issue. He sees one that stands at the very center of the gospel. He sees an issue in which the very integrity of the gospel is at stake. And here's what he says, starting in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I I come this morning uh, needy, uh, Lord, needy as I always am, but Lord, more aware of that uh, than even the normal. And Lord, I I need you. 
Lord, I need a power that I do not possess. And I pray right now as we come into this text, Lord, a text that is rich and deep and and hard to wrap our heads around and one, Lord, that in many ways is uncomfortable. I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray you would come. I pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray you would give words to my lips. And Lord, you would, through your Spirit, open our eyes wide to the beauty of Jesus here in this text. And may we walk from this room not trusting in ourselves, not impressed by a preacher, but Lord, instead, enraptured by the beauty of Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we are a naturally divided people. Uh, It's everywhere that you look. It's in every place that you go. There are always these lines of division. And for me, that was a reality that I don't think I fully appreciated until I was in the fourth grade. And I went from being a homeschool kid in Cedar Hill, Texas, to being a public school kid in Richardson, Texas. And I still remember my first day at Aldridge Elementary, the Aldridge Ocelots. And I remember walking in and thinking, I'm about to take this place by storm, and then realizing as soon as I walked through those doors, that before I ever said a word, before I did anything, I had already been labeled and placed in the category. It was a school that was divided in every way that you could possibly imagine. There were racial lines, there were the black kids and the white kids, the Hispanic kids and the Asian kids. There were the rich kids and the poor kids. There were the kids who had what at the time we thought was the height and the pinnacle of fashion, the Umbro soccer shorts and the Adidas Samba indoor soccer shoes. And then there were the kids like me who just wished they had them and bought the knockoff. Uh, There were the kids who got picked for soccer and the ones who got left behind. There were the ones who packed their lunches and the ones who bought the school lunches, which how that becomes a measure of status, nobody knows but a fourth grader at Aldridge Elementary. There were the troubled kids and there were the good kids. And everywhere you looked, there were all of these boundary lines all of them marking out who belonged and who didn't, who had worth and who had value and who didn't. And you know, what I experienced in the fourth grade, that's just a small window into the world we all live in, isn't it? Because we are a people who will divide over some of the stupidest things I can possibly imagine. I mean, I know that in my house, every Thanksgiving, my family divides over who's going to win a certain football game between Georgia and Georgia Tech. And my brother and I can sometimes get a little bit heated. Uh, We divide over things as silly and as stupid as whether or not we and our neighbors put up the right kind of holiday decorations, tasteful ones, and then they also take them down in time. Uh, We divide over politics, over culture, over language, over race, and everywhere we look we see this, and that pattern of division, it's one that shows up even in the one place where it seems as though it should not be, right here in the church. I mean, you don't have to have been a part of a church for very long to have seen that those patterns of division, they are still alive and well. You have all either been a part of or heard of churches that came together saying there is only one thing that matters, and that's the glory of God. 
We want to proclaim the name of Jesus. We want to see his kingdom come. Build your kingdom here. And then you've watched as that church exploded because a group of people couldn't decide how they wanted to worship on Sunday morning. We've seen whole denominations that spring up out of other denominations, not just because of theological differences, but because one denomination decided they didn't like the color of the other one's skin. And it is a pattern of division that stalks the halls of every church, even the best of churches, even this one. Because I can guarantee you this, there are some of you here today who you are sitting in the seat you are sitting in, in the section you are sitting in, and you are attending the service that you are in today, in the venue that you are in today, and you are doing it not because it is what is most comfortable, or just because it's what you're used to. It's because you know that there is somebody else who comes at another time and sits in another seat and comes to another venue. And you know if you come and you sit in this place at this time that you can stay away from them. And I know that's true because I've done that. And there is this part of us that looks at all of that all the fragmentation and all of that ugliness and thinks, that's just the way it is. I mean, what can we possibly do to fix it? It is so rampant. It is so prevalent. Maybe all we need to do is just sit back and wait for Jesus to come back because there's nothing we can do right here and right now. But what Paul, what Paul is saying here in this text is that is the absolute last thing the church of Jesus Christ can afford to do. Because while that may be the world the way the world works, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that one day Jesus' church will be made one. It is that that is what Jesus has done in his church right now. It is a oneness that Jesus died to create it is a oneness that he even now lives to preserve. And it is a oneness that one day he will bring in full. And Paul, he is looking out at God's people here in the book of Ephesians. And he is saying, this is a oneness that you have not just been called into. It is a oneness that I want you to live out of. It's a oneness that it is absolutely imperative that we embrace. And he says this, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. He's saying, don't miss this. Don't ignore this. Don't walk away from this. I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and he says, you are to do this because here is the gospel reality. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says you may look around the world and you may see people of all different stripes, 
You may think that there are people who should be in the people of God and people who should not be. You may look around and think, well, I kind of think these people deserve to be in and these people don't, but what Paul is saying here is, here is reality. Not a reality that someday will come. This is true right now. There is one body, not two, not three, not four, not a body for the people that you like, and then a body over there for the people who have hurt you. Uh, Not a body for those who look like you and act like you and make you feel comfortable, and then another body over there for those whose appearance is just a little bit different and whose language is just a little bit harder to understand. He says, here is what is true. Jesus has taken people from every tribe and language and people and tongue, and he has brought them into one people. And he has poured out on them one spirit, He has brought them into the same gospel promises as those saved by the grace of the same Savior. And every one of them, they are those who can say with full assurance, we are children of the living God. They have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It is a people that every one of us enters into only by God's grace. And you know, I, I remember very distinctly when the Lord began to kind of force me to wrestle with this in my own life. You know, I am a, a guy, I went to the University of Georgia, I'm a, a preppy guy that grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, in Atlanta, Georgia. But when I moved to St. Louis, Missouri for seminary as a 24-year-old, and I found myself sitting in a congregation in the heart of urban St. Louis, I suddenly realized that while in my head, I knew all about this reality. There is one body that the cross has washed away those differences. It has washed away those who are better or worse than another. Instead, it has brought us all by grace into the people of God. I knew that in my head. But when I walked into that body of people who did not look like me, of people who were racially different, who were socioeconomically different, who were culturally different, suddenly it became very apparent that what I knew in my head was very different from what I felt in my heart. Because it was really easy for me to look around that room and go, there's the people that are worth my time. There's the ones that I'm going to invest in. There's the ones that I'll spend time with, and then there are others who, I won't be mean, but they're not quite as easy. And it was something that Jesus in his kindness would not let me get away from. Because every week, every week at South City Church, we had communion. And we didn't do it the way that we do it here at Perimeter. We didn't pass a plate with little individual cups. Uh, We didn't do it by intention. What we did is we all got in a circle around the sanctuary, and the pastor would hold up one loaf of bread, and he would say, this is Christ's body broken for you, and he would break it, and he would pass it out, and it would begin to go down the line, and each of us would take a little piece, and we would eat that piece, and then when we had all eaten it, he would then hold up one cup, and he would say, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And then he would place it in the hands of the person next to him. 
and that cup would pass from hand to hand to hand. Black hands to white hands, rich hands to poor hands, young hands to old hands, and sick hands to healthy ones. (laughs) And every person would take that cup, the same one, and they would lift it to their lips, and they would drink from its contents, and then they would pass it to the next. So that by the time you got down the line, there was a healthy supply of backwash just to make sure you really felt you know, nice and intimate. And every week when that would happen, I would watch that cup and I would see this person coughing or this person that I wasn't sure when they had last brushed their teeth or when they had last taken a bath and it would just keep moving towards me and all this stuff in my heart would start erupting like, do I really want to share that? Did I really want to take that cup and put it to my lips? And even as that was going on in my heart, even as that ugliness was being unveiled and provoked, there was also ice in that cup, this beautiful invitation of Jesus saying, Caleb, don't you see? Don't you see? You are not different. You came into this body by the same grace by the same shed blood, by the same mercy, and you have received the same promises, and you are part of the same family, and the people whose lips are touching that cup by faith in the work of Jesus, they are closer to you than any member of your family who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's reality. Jesus looks out at our divided, broken, fragmented world and he says, here, there is not Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. He's saying all the things that used to divide you, race, religion or irreligion, those who are the cultural elites and those who are the barbarians, those who you would consider the put together and the prestigious and those who are the scum of the earth like the Scythians, every single one of you, you may not belong in the world outside. You may not have worth to the world outside, but you matter to me. And while they say you do not belong, I say you are mine. Children of my Father and recipients of the very Spirit of God. And if Jesus, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are willing to share everything they are with us as his, their people, how much more, how should we not also be willing to give our lives to our brothers and to our sisters? Paul says this is a gospel reality that comes with gospel responsibilities. He says in verses two and three, I want you to love, even as you have been loved, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. He's saying in the same way that Jesus loved you, in the same way he was so humble that he was willing, even though he deserved all glory and all praise, in the same way he was willing to come here, into the dirt of this broken, sinful earth 
and to receive not praise, but your mockery and your rebuke. In the same way that Jesus did that, that is the way you are to love your brothers and sisters. With the same gentleness that Jesus picked up every one of us when we were broken and hurting and was so tender with us that he did not break us, but instead he healed us. With the same patience that Jesus has pursued us, even as we've gone back to the same sins again and again and again. In the same way he is born with us in love. In the same way that he has eagerly sought to make us as broken and messed up as we are, to make us one with himself. Paul says that, that is how we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. With our hearts and with our lives. Because if we do not, then we may, if we do not accept this responsibility, then we deny with our lives the very reality we proclaim with our lips. Francis Schaeffer is one of my pastoral heroes. He wrote this in his book, The Mark of a Christian. He says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And before we think that maybe Schaefer's going a little bit too far, this is a permission that Jesus himself has given to the watching world. Because what does Jesus pray in John 17? He prays that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And it is for this reason that the world would believe that the Father had sent him. Paul is saying this is a gospel. This is a reality we have to embrace. Because if we do not, we give the watching world permission to look at Jesus and say there is no power and there is no reality here. Now I don't know about you, but that's a dagger to my heart. Because I look at myself and I look at even the best of relationships that I have and they are nowhere close to the oneness that Jesus is calling us to. And if I know that even my best relationships are not even close to the oneness that Jesus has called his church, how much further from that reality are we when we look at the church at large and we see people not just that are hard to get along with sometimes, but some that we just plain don't like. This, this unity, it's not just one that we need to embrace. It's one that if we are honest, every single one of us needs to grow up into. And Paul knows it. In the verses that follow, he says to the church, you are like children who are tossed about by the waves, and I want you to become mature adults. I want you, as he says in verse 15, to grow up into the Christ who is the head. And this growth, here is where we see this, the beauty of Jesus and the kindness of our Savior. He doesn't say, I've called you into this, and now go out and figure out a way to make it happen. 
No, what, what Paul says is Jesus in his kindness and in his tenderness, he has not just called us into this unity, he has provided for us the means by which we grow. And they are means that are as beautiful as they are uncomfortable. Because here's what he says, starting in verse seven. He says, but grace, though you were all one, though Christ has made you one new people, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There is diversity in the midst of this unity. Jesus is given each one of us different gifts in the context of his body that the body of Christ as a whole would be impoverished if they were without. Jesus has given us these gifts that we as a whole would flourish and grow up into the one who is the head. And then Paul goes on. He says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is like a Gordian knot of a passage that we don't have time to untangle. So I'm just going to tell you the picture Paul's painting. It is the picture of a triumphant ascendant king who has just conquered all of his enemies and ours and now is seated on his throne. And out of the spoils that he has won in victory, he is giving gifts to his people that they would flourish. And what Paul is saying, and what he doesn't want any of us to miss, is that the one who has ascended, the one who sits on that throne, the one who even now is giving gifts to men, it's the one who so loved us that though he had all the riches of heaven, he descended and he became poor and he even went to a cross that you and I who deserved no mercy, would receive his mercy. And in his ascent, he would give us still more. He is painting a picture of a Savior who is giving these gifts out of the same heart that led him to die for his sheep. And then he goes on and shows us the means. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul's saying if we want to grow, if we want to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, if we want to reach mature manhood, if we want to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, if we want to develop our gifts and use them so that the whole body would flourish, then every one of us, notice what he says, every one of us, for the church to be built up, we have to be equipped. And that equipping, it comes through very specific means. He says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Paul, he is here talking about broken, sinful people just like you. 
Not people who are above us, not people who are greater than us. Instead, people who just like you have received gifts that are there to bless the people of Christ. And he is saying, if we want to grow up into the unity to which he is calling us, it starts right here in submission to these means. And the first group he says is essential for our growth. It is the apostles and the prophets. Now this is a group that you see mentioned repeatedly in the book of Ephesians. Twice before we even get to this chapter, it is a group that no longer exists in the church, but continues to speak with authority into the life of the church. It's one that, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, they are the ones to whom God has chosen to reveal the mystery of who he is. The mystery of what Jesus has done. The mystery of how he feels for his people and cares for his people and what he has called us to do. These are men through whom God reveals himself by his spirit so that we would not be those adrift and not those led astray, but instead those who are growing into the unity. And notice the word, the knowledge of the Son of God. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2 that these men and the gifts that they represent, they are the foundation upon which the church is built with Christ as the cornerstone. Which means you can say you are a church, but if you were not built on this foundation, though you may have all sorts of similarities with the church, that is not what you really are. Because to stray from these men, to stray from the teaching that God has entrusted to them, it is to stray from the very one who revealed himself through them. They're the foundation that we as the church are to build on. The second group he says that we need for growth is the evangelists. And you know, we all, every one of us, and at Perimeter you'll hear this over and over, all of us are called to share our faith. And all of us are called to be proclaimers of the good news of the gospel, but we all know there are certain people who are just better at it, that, that have a gift that we look at and go, I don't know how you do that. You sneeze and people come to Christ. Uh, that's what Paul's pointing at here. It's these people that God uses to invite those on the outside to come and to taste and to see that Jesus is good and would satisfy their souls. It's people who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, that brothers and sisters who are yet unknown to us, but who are known to our Heavenly Father, that they would be added to our number. And if the apostles and the prophets, if they're the foundation, the evangelists are the ones who are making the bricks and bringing them inside. And then lastly, Paul says there are the shepherds and teachers. This is two words, but it's only talking about one office. There is only one definite article here. It is the shepherds and teachers. And this is an, a role, an office that you see mentioned all through the New Testament uh, and one that you see most clearly in 1 Peter 5 where Peter is speaking to a group of local elders of local churches and he says this, he says, here is what you are to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He's saying, I want you as those that God has entrusted with the care of his sheep, not yours, as those that God has given stewardship over his flock, not yours, in the context of the place where you live, 
I want you to shepherd them, to bring back sheep that are straying, to go to sheep that are wounded and need the balm of the gospel and apply that healing balm to the place where they are hurt, to teach so that when false teachers and false doctrines begin to find their way into the life of the church, you would be able to rebuke them and call them back to what is true. And you do all these things not to gain power for yourself, not to accumulate wealth, but as those that are called to serve the church, even as Jesus has served you with your lives. These are men that Jesus has set apart to be the physical hands and feet of our great shepherd here in the earth. And if the apostles and the prophets are the ones who are the foundation, and the evangelists are the ones who are making the bricks, the shepherds and teachers, they're the ones that are joining their hands with Jesus and taking those bricks and shaping them and forming them so that they would uniquely fit in the specific place for which God has designed them. That God's church would grow up into the one who is the head. That they would be one. And what you cannot escape with every one of these roles is that these are gifts that you can only experience if you first are willing to submit to them. When I was in St. Louis in seminary, uh, my part-time job was as a personal trainer. And when you are in personal training, there's a very specific pattern everything follows. People come to you, they tell you what they want to do, they want to get ready for their wedding, they need to lose weight because the doctor says if they don't, they'll die. Uh, they have some injury that needs to be rehabbed, they have some spring break trip they want to get ready for, and you will take all that knowledge, you'll go, okay, here's the steps. Uh, first, I want you to make a food journal. I want you to write down literally everything you eat from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And then, once you've done that over the course of a week, you're going to bring it back. And I'm going to tell you all the things that you like eating and now can't. And then the things you don't like eating and that you now have to. And then on top of that, I'm going to ask that you show up several times a week and you work out as I desire you to work out. And if you do these things, you might accomplish your goal. And what you realize really quickly is that if you want to know who's going to grow the most, surprisingly, it is not necessarily the most athletically gifted person. It's not the one who maybe had a background in exercise. It's the one who is willing to submit to the means. Paul he says the same thing's true in the church. You know, I realize as I talk about this, that word submit, that's not a popular one in our culture, is it? We like to think of ourselves as John Wayne. We want to be individualistic. We want to be in control. Uh, we want to be those who chart our own path and who are not really bound down by the structures of society. But what you can't miss in this text is that if these gifts are to be enjoyed, just like any other gift, you have to receive them. And how do you receive these gifts unless first you submit to them? Because how can you build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets if you are not first willing to submit to the authority that they represent?
How can you receive the good news of the evangelist, the forgiveness of sins, the mercy of a Savior, and enter into his people if you are not willing to come by the means that God intends? How are you to be shepherded to have the unique gifts that God has given you shaped and formed so that they would bless the people of God if you were not first willing to submit to the authority of elders in the context of a local church. Now I realize in our culture, church membership is kind of a dirty word. It's one of those that in a lot of churches in recent years, people have begun to jettison that idea, and the argument has been there's no specific text laying out a process for church membership. You know, there's not an Ephesians 7 where it says that on, you know, session 2, Randy will tell you the history of Perimeter Church. It doesn't say that anywhere. But here's what is true. In the Old Testament and in the New Can you think of a single instance of any person coming to faith in Israel's God, in Jesus, where that person is not then brought by covenant sign into a local community where they submit to the authority of those that God has entrusted with their care? You won't find one. The implication that is not just in this text, but in a whole host of others, is that if you were to grow, it comes first by submission to these means. Now, I will say to you freely, I could be really wrong. I've been wrong before. I've been wrong about a lot of things. And and I'm sure that when I stand face to face with Jesus, there are going to be some things he looks at and goes, Caleb, how did you ever get that out of the Bible? I love you. That's just wrong. But here's where I would challenge you here. Don't dismiss this just because you don't like it. Don't dismiss this just because it makes you uncomfortable. Dismiss it after wrestling with the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers and becoming convinced that this text and all the others, it is telling you something different than what I just described. Because if what I see in this text is true, then there is a very serious risk if these means are not submitted to. Because not only will you not be developed as Christ intends, but your brothers and sisters are going to be deprived of a gift that Jesus says is essential for their flourishing. Because you won't be equipped. And more serious than that, if you reject the means, how can you not also, by implication, reject the one who gave you those means? How can you Be in submission to Jesus if you are not willing to submit to the means he has given for your good and for your growth. And what I would have all of us see, what Paul desperately wants us to see, Jesus has not given us these means because he wants to hinder us and hurt us and enslave us. 
Jesus has given us these means that you and I, we would truly be free. That we would grow up more and more and more into the one who is the head. That we would grow up more and more and more into the knowledge of our Savior and what he has done. Because here's his purpose with this. It is that you and I, we would no longer be children tossed about by the waves. It is that you and I, we would no longer be those who are torn apart at every bit of envy and every bit of gossip and every story told us about us, but instead we would be those who are held firm, who are anchored in the means of God's grace. And that each and every one of us, every joint, every ligament, every muscle, and every sinew of this body, it would be equipped properly, as he says in verse 16, so that this whole body, nourishing and feeding and caring for itself, would build itself up in love and would speak the truth in love and delight in each other in love. And more and more and more and more become the one people of God that God has created us to be in Jesus Christ. Because that, that is when a watching world will be forced to say, truly he was the son of God. But we're not there yet. We still have a long way to go. But here's the hope of the gospel the oneness that Jesus died to create, the oneness that he even now lives and pursues. It is a oneness that one day, no matter how broken the church is, no matter how fragmented we seem, it is a oneness that one day will come in full. It is a oneness that will climax in a new heavens and a new earth with one people, from every tribe and language and people and tongue, crying out with one voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. This is the oneness that Jesus has called you into. This is the oneness that he now calls you to live out of. Therefore, as his people, as sheep beloved by their great shepherd, as those that God loves and cares for with all that he has, walk, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we need you. Lord, we confess, I confess, just even as I read this, Lord, I feel my own heart. My own heart resists these means. My own heart wants to be independent. My own heart wants to go my own way. And Lord, I am so thankful that in your mercy, Lord, you do not let me. You don't let me run to what is death. Instead, you bring me back to yourself and what is truly life. And Lord, I pray that the same would be true for every person in this room. Let us leave this place holding your hand, delighting in your Savior, and hungry for the unity that you not only created and you are not only pursuing, but that one day you, in glorious beauty, will bring in full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.